Thank you for that beautiful music, for all your singing, um, praising God with song and with word. How beautiful. And how beautiful all those faces out there. Wow, it's so good to see you. Let me welcome you along with uh, the other welcomes you've had today. I am Deb Haygood, and I am part of the teaching team for Women in the Word. And what a joy to be here with you all today. How exciting. How many of you are here for the very first time? Karen asked that. I didn't get to see the hands. Raise your hand. Wow, look at that. Okay, if you didn't raise your hand, that means you've been here before. So introduce yourself to someone that has their hand up when this is over. We want to welcome you. We want everyone to feel welcome. And I would love to meet you. So if you would like, come up here after this is over. And I would like to introduce myself to you and and meet you as well. Thank you for coming today. And I hope you come back. I hope you, we wanted everything to be comfortable and warm, but sometimes it's kind of hard. Um, so if that was your experience, just give us another chance next week and please um, come back. You know, the first day of something is always um, uh, exciting. The first day of school, the first day of Bible study, the first day of a job. It's always exciting, um, but it also can be very scary. And it can be hard, especially if you're new. So we know, those of you that are new, that this might have been hard. Thank you for the courage it took to come. Now, I know about being new. Some of you know this story. You've heard it before. But I came to TCU from Miami, Florida, and I didn't know one person in the state of Texas. And so I came. This story is about orientation. Some of you might have heard. First day of orientation, I'm in Shirley Dorm. And we we were given roommates in in alphabetical order. And I meet this gal. And and let me say right up front, this was God's providence because she... She was wonderful. I loved her. We were roommates all through TCU. I was in her wedding. She was in mine. And she lives in Louisiana. We are still great friends today. So that was, um, that was God's providence. So she's walking with me. We're leaving with a group out of the dorm and going to eat dinner this first night of orientation. And about halfway down the like 20 million steps in front of Shirley dorm, I slip and go bouncing down the steps. But I'm young, and so I just pop right up, and, you know, they're like, are you okay? Yeah, yeah, but embarrassed, but we all laugh and go on. Now, if that happened today, ladies, they would have had to take me to the emergency room. I probably, no telling what I would have broken. But I was young, jumped up, go over to the dining room. So I sit down, you know, trying to get over that embarrassment, and I have ham on my plate, and my serrated knife and my fork somehow got mixed up, and my ham goes flying off my plate into the person across the table from me, some guy, and quick as lightning, I stab it back and put it on my plate. (laughs) But everybody has seen it, and so they begin to laugh once again. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, when will this night be over? But then the worst thing happens. They begin to tell Aggie jokes. I'm from Miami, Florida. I say, what's an Aggie? Silence descends at the table. They look at me like I've got two heads, and I'm thinking, oh, my goodness. And my sweet roommate, who I've just met, that is my lifelong friend, she says, well, an Aggie is someone that goes to A&M, which still didn't tell me much, but I thought, okay, I'm just going to button it up, and this is Texas, and eat my dinner in silence. You know, ladies, that was just the first of many stories that I have my first year at TCU. I uh, know what it feels like to be new. It can be hard. So thank you, those of you that are new, for being courageous and coming today. And please come back. Please come back and join us next week. Because we're going to be studying Daniel this whole semester. And Daniel knows what it's like to be new. Because he was taken captive to a foreign country. 
So he had a new culture. There were new clothes and new food. Everything was new. And how hard that must have been for Daniel. So if you're new, then you're in good company this semester as we study the book of Daniel. Daniel is the author of the book of Daniel, and we're going to look at it for the next 11 weeks. We'll finish up right before um, the Thursday before Thanksgiving. And we're going to look at every chapter and every verse. And uh, we've given you some homework or some study questions, and we do not want this to be a pain. This is for you, for you to be able to look at the passage of Scripture, to look at the chapter in Daniel um, before you come to Bible study on Thursday, to be able to read it and to think about it and to ponder it. We um, don't give this to you to stress you out. We don't want you to um, be stressed out. We want you to be able to come to your small group, a little familiar with the passage, and give your thoughts on it, and listen to the thoughts of others, and it's going to be a great time. And then you'll come in here, and there'll be a teacher that will give some additional comments. And by the way, let me tell you, the teaching team for this semester is Amy McConnell, Anjanette Walshhauser, Vanita Jones, Wendy Lyon, uh, Lynn Kitchens, and Shelley Davis. So you'll see those faces up here as well this semester. And we didn't um, come up with these questions to make you worried. We're not grading them. We're not checking them. These are for you. We want you to enjoy the questions. We want you to be able to ponder them and to let the Word of God go deep in your heart. Let these questions lead you into the Word of God so that you are drawn closer to Him. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you insight so that you might know God better as you look and read and think about this passage of Scripture. This summer, I read the biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and it um, was great. He was an amazing man. He was a German theologian and pastor in Nazi Germany, and he um, took a stand against the Nazis um, for the way their stance and their treatment of the Jews. And in this biography, there are many letters that he wrote, and I just wanted to read a little excerpt from this letter that he wrote to his brother-in-law. And this is what he says. First of all, I will confess quite simply, I believe that the Bible alone is the answer to all our questions and that we need only to ask repeatedly and a little humbly in order to receive this answer. One cannot simply read the Bible like other books. One must be prepared really to inquire of it. Only thus will it reveal itself. Only if we expect from it the ultimate answer shall we receive it. That is because in the Bible... God speaks to us. And one cannot simply think about God in one's own strength. One has to inquire of him. I love that because I believe that too. God speaks to us through his word. In this Bible, we hear the voice of God. It is God's love letter to us. And not just us corporately, but to us individually, to me and to you individually. It is his story. It is his plan for man. His story of love and redemption. His story. When we write that out, it spells history. So history, all through history, we see God in the center of it. He did not create us to leave us alone and to leave us with questions. He wants us to be in relationship with him, to enjoy him and to enjoy life. And that's why Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth. God the Son came to earth so that we might know God. And it's through the cross that we can have a relationship with him. That is why we are here today. 
We are here to study God's word because it brings us closer to him. And we find these answers on how to live each day. Answers to those questions that are going on around us. Now, some of you might say, boy, this world is very chaotic and I don't really see God in the middle of it. Where is he? In the midst of this crazy weather, we've got hurricanes in the northeast with flooding. And here in Texas, we have record high temperatures with drought and fires. And um, the economy, that's kind of sketchy. I mean, the stock market, is it up or down or what's going on? And then the political arena, I don't even want to get into that. What's going to happen when we have to vote next uh, year? It's kind of crazy out there. How can I really believe that God's in the middle of that? Where is God in this chaotic world? Or maybe you trust God, you believe he's there, but you're thinking, hey, I'm in a hard spot right now. And the pressures of the world are so great. They're trying to squeeze me into their mold. I don't know if I can stand up against it. All these answers are in the book of Daniel. Because it was a chaotic time for Daniel. Daniel's whole country had been taken, defeated, and taken into captivity. And they were living in a foreign land. I'm sure they were saying, where is God in the middle of this? And Daniel, there was great pressure put on him to conform to the society of that day. And we're going to see how he stood up against that. How he stood firm. And we'll see those answers in the book of Daniel. And I think as we study this... That it will change us. Because the word of God changes us. That's what that song just said. Ancient words impart. That's what my prayer is for you. That we will study these ancient words and grow closer to God as we do that. Daniel is an amazing book. It is interesting and it's intriguing. It has those wonderful, well-known stories. We might call them simple stories that most of us heard when we were little children. And then, on the other hand, it has those complex and highly symbolic visions that are difficult to interpret, yet they're foundational for our understanding of the end times. The book of Daniel is about Daniel, but more importantly, is about Daniel's God. It's about Daniel's God, who is our God, the creator, sustainer, redeemer, Sovereign God of the universe, the one and only true and living God. That's Daniel's God, and that's what we're going to be looking at this semester. Daniel's life and his ministry spans the entire 70-year period of the um, Jews' captivity in Babylon. And in Daniel, we see his personal adventures as well as his prophetic visions. It's about half and half. The first six chapters are the stories of Daniel. The last six chapters are those prophetic visions that God gives Daniel. Uh, But we're not going to study. Let me just say that right now. We're not going to study it uh, in order because chapter 7 and 8 actually happen after chapter 4 and before 5. And so for this study, this time, we're going to study it like that and put them in there. So if you're looking at your questions and they seem out of order, it's okay because they are. But we're going to look at it all. Um, Just know that after chapter 4, we have 7 and 8, and then we'll go back to 5, 6, and so forth. Woven all through these verses, we see God's purposes and plans of sovereign control over all things. His sovereign control. You know, Daniel is written partly in Hebrew, which is the language of the Jews, and some chapters are written in Aramaic, which is the language of the Gentile. So not only does Daniel provide hope and comfort to the Jews whose nation was destroyed by the Babylonians, he also offers comfort to the Gentiles. 
to the Babylonians and to the future believer and to the future church. That's us. Now, we might not get all these prophetic visions exactly right, but we will be seeking God all 11 weeks. And I know that along the way, we are going to see a mighty, powerful, loving, sovereign God. Our God who is in control. And my prayer is that our faith will grow and that we will trust God more and more as we learn that he brings all things and all people under his rule. As we see God's faithful plan, as we see his control over history, as we see these things come to pass that we read about, our faith will deepen and we will grow to trust him more and more and be able to follow him in faithful obedience. Trusting him. I love what Amy Carmichael said. She was a missionary to India, and she used to put the word lean in place of trust. So instead of um, trust on God, she would say lean on God. Trust in him. Lean into him. And you might want to think about that word as we study and talk about trusting God this semester. Lean on God. So let's turn to Daniel 1, and we're going to look at this first chapter today. We're going to start with verse 1. And I love chapter 1 because it gives us, um, it sets the stage for the whole book of Daniel. In chapter 1, we have these major themes of Daniel introduced to us. So we're going to look at that today. And then we're also going to look at a little background, what's happening to get here. And then we're going to learn a little bit about Daniel. Um, Actually, quite a bit about Daniel in this first chapter. So if you'll turn, I will read chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So what we have here, Jehoiakim is king of Judah. That is the southern kingdom of Israel. The northern kingdom has already been taken into captivity by the Assyrians. And now it's 605 B.C. The Babylonians have defeated the Assyrians and they're going up against Judah. And it says he attacks the city of Jerusalem, and Nebuchadnezzar takes captives and valuable articles back to Babylon. This is the first of three waves that Nebuchadnezzar comes in before he finally defeats Judah. And it's in this first wave that Daniel is taken captive to Babylon in this first wave, 605 B.C. And I guess this would be a good place to look at the map, if we can put that up. Um, You have that in your, uh, I think in your pack it with your outline and your verses. And I thought this would be important to look at this map of, um, it may be easier to see in your, in your notebook, but up in that left-hand corner, you see right underneath the word Canaan, you see Jerusalem. Follow that to that little dot. That's the capital of Judah. That whole little area around there with Bethlehem and Jericho, that's Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. And then if you look straight over to your right, you will see Babylon. That is the city, and then that is the empire that's going to take over. And right above it, you see Assyria. Now, the Assyrians were the world power, but now the Babylonians have taken over. And then if you keep going to the right, you're going to see Persia, and we're going to talk about Persia, um, because that's who's going to take over the Babylonians at the end of this 70-year period of captivity. So that's your map. Uh, There's going to be other times we might want to refer to it, so keep that handy in your notebook. 
And um, I want to go on to the second wave, which was 597. Nebuchadnezzar returns to Judah um, because now it's King Jehoiachin who is the king. And he's supposed to be a vassal, but he gets rebellious. So Nebuchadnezzar comes in and defeats um, that battle and takes Jehoiachin um, into captivity. And it's also when he takes Ezekiel into captivity. But Ezekiel doesn't go to the palace. He goes up north kind of in a work Gang. And then finally, on the third trip, Nebuchadnezzar, after a long siege, defeats Judah. They tear down the walls of Jerusalem, they burn the temple, um, they destroy the city, and the Jews that are left alive are taken into captivity to Babylon. And this is 586 BC. Now, we learned last semester as we uh, studied Isaiah that God told his people then that God was going to um, punish them, that they were going to go into captivity if they did not turn back and follow God. In fact, that's why we're studying Daniel this semester because of that prophecy. And I thought it would be neat to see what actually happens when that prophecy of captivity um, is fulfilled. Now, some of you are sitting there thinking, hey, wait a minute. I didn't study Isaiah last semester, and I don't remember my ancient world history. I don't know who in the heck Jehoiakim is. I sort of remember Nebuchadnezzar. What is going on here? So before you run out screaming, I'm just going to give a little review for those um, to kind of get you up to speed right here. And it's going to be a real brief review. Those of you that know this, just you know, doze off for a second. But the story begins in Genesis. And God um, calls out Abraham, and he says to Abraham, I'm going to make a covenant with you, and I'm going to bless you with land and with descendants, and I will be your God, and I will be the God to these people, and um, you will be my people. And that's what happens. And so um, his grandson Jacob, Abraham's grandson Jacob, has 12 sons, and their families become the 12 tribes of Israel. And over time, they grow and grow. And when Exodus opens, they have been in bondage in Egypt for 400 years. This is when God sends Moses to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt and then take them back to that land he promised Abraham, the promised land. And so that's what Moses does. And what should have been a two-month journey ends up taking 40 years because of the Israelites' disobedience. But they finally make it, and they're on the banks of the Jordan River, getting ready to cross over into the promised land um, that would become Israel. And on these banks, Moses reminds them of who God is. God is your God. You are his people. His laws are good and righteous. That he has given. They're for your protection. They're for your provision. And actually on your verse sheet, let's read that real fast. I've got a couple verses um, from Deuteronomy because I think this is real important. It kind of sets the stage for God and his people. Deuteronomy 4, 7 through 9. This is Moses saying to them, What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? Only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them slip from your heart as long as you live. Things like crossing the Red Sea that's piled up. Uh, Things like manna that was given to them every day. Do not forget these things. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. Remember. And he goes on to say that several times in Deuteronomy. Remember. And then in 10.12, he says this. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? 
but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good. And he goes over these laws that their loving God had given them that would bring them blessing and not harm. But they do not remember. So for 800 plus years, we have the judges and then we have these different kings. There's always a faithful remnant, always, that goes through. But for the most part, Israel does not remember their God. They turn away from him. They disobey his laws. They do not worship him. They were supposed to be an example to the pagans around them of showing them, hey, look at our God, the living, true God who cares for us. Instead, they're out worshiping the pagan gods and the idols, the ungods. They're not even true living gods. And yet that's what they were doing. And so we see the prophets coming. God, time and again, um, sends people to them over and over for 800 years to say, turn back to me. I love you. I want to take care of you. Jeremiah, I mean, Isaiah warns them. Jeremiah tells this to them. Ezekiel says, turn back to God or you're going to be taken into captivity and punishment. And then we have those little books, those minor prophets of Habakkuk and Zephaniah and um, Micah. They're talking and telling them, God loves you. Turn back to him. But they do not. And finally, the warning of judgment comes to pass with this captivity of the southern kingdom to Babylon. Warren Wearsby says, God would rather have his people living in shameful captivity in a pagan land than living like pagans in the holy land, disgracing his name. The book of Daniel not only emphasizes this time of God's sovereign rule, but it also is an example of God's faithfulness to his covenant people in protecting them and preserving them, even though they're under divine discipline for their disobedience. They're under divine discipline for their disobedience. God is not finished with them. He does not cast them away. He does not abandon them. And so in the book of Daniel, we see that God has a patient plan to bring them back to himself and to bring them back into blessing. We see all that in this book of Daniel. So let's continue with verse two. And it says, And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. You see there it says, the Lord delivered Jehoiakim. It wasn't Nebuchadnezzar that had the power and the might. It was God that delivered Jehoiakim to Nebuchadnezzar. It's God's power and it's God's plan. He is in control. He is sovereign. So right off the bat, we are introduced to the sovereignty of God. And this um, theme of the sovereignty of God, God is sovereign, goes all through the book. In fact, it's the major theme that we're going to be looking at this um, semester. And um, we see, we're going to see in this sovereignty of God that he has a plan and that God has power. That's part of what sovereignty is. God has a plan for his people the captive Jews, and we talked about that, this patient plan to bring him back to himself. And he also has a plan for their captors, the Babylonians, the Gentiles. He has a plan for the Gentile. They would see his power and his might during these 70 years. And God would use this time so that the Gentiles might also come to believe in him. 
By the way, sovereignty of God is a term expressing the supreme rulership of God. Now, this is not so much an attribute of God, but it's a prerogative based upon the perfections of a divine being. On the divine um, attributes of God. So that the, um, even though the sovereignty of God is absolute, he is under no external restraint whatsoever. Remember that, ladies. He is under no external restraint whatsoever. But this doesn't mean it's some sort of dictatorship because the sovereignty of God is characterized by his perfect justice, his perfect holiness, his perfect love, his perfect faithfulness. And when we understand the sovereignty of God, it gives us great confidence in who God is. It's foundational in our faith going deeper. We see the sovereignty of God in his creation. We see it in his plan um, and provision for his people. We see it in redemption. The sovereignty of God. God is sovereign, a major theme in the book of Daniel. God has a plan for his people. God has a plan for the Gentile. And God has a plan for Daniel. And we see that in verse 3. Then the king ordered Hashpanaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Daniel is from royalty. And he is brought to the palace court. And God will use Daniel in the palace. His long ministry will be in the political arena. Now, um, you might put in that blank there, royalty or nobility. We see that Daniel is from um, a royal noble family. Probably his mother or his dad was somehow related, maybe the sister or brother, to the king of Judah. So he is royalty. And we're going to see, because of Daniel's faithfulness in this position in the palace, that God has great opportunity to display his um, awesome might and power as he um, uses that on Daniel's behalf. So the kings are going to see this power, and the people are going to hear about this power. So God has a plan for Daniel, and God has a plan for you, each one of you. God created you, he loves you, and he wants to be in a relationship with you. He wants to be in a relationship with you, blessing you as you follow him. So let's see what we learn about Daniel. Let's read these next verses here. Four, I'm going to read down to verse eight. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, and to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my Lord and King who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The King would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, 
Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food. And treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and he tested them for ten days. So we see in the beginning here that Daniel comes from nobility. He's healthy. He's strong, he's handsome, he's smart, he's quick and intelligent, and we see that he has leadership abilities. He qualifies to serve in the palace. He is the best and the brightest. We might say he's the cream of the crop. His physical and personal and intellectual capacities, as well as his family background, are superior So he's put into this three-year class with some other bright guys from Judah, his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego among them, as well as um, the very important and bright young men from Babylon. And Daniel is about 16 years old at this time. And they are going to learn the language and the literature of the Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar wants them to um, learn how to think and live like Babylonians. So Daniel's given a Babylonian name, Belteshazzar, we saw that, along with his three friends. Now their Hebrew names, and we don't have time to go into it, all had something to do with God. Like Daniel's name means God is my judge. These new Babylonian names all have to do with the ungods of Babylon, such as Bel and Aku and Nebo. And then it says they were given food and wine from the king's table. And this is where Daniel draws the line. This is where he draws the line. And it says there, here in verse 8, he does not want to defile him. Now, why is Daniel okay with learning the Babylonian language? He's okay with the Babylonian name, and yet he does not want to um, eat their food. He's not okay with that. Verse 8 tells us that it would defile him. And why is that? Now, God had given laws to the Jewish people about food, about handling food and what foods that they were forbidden to eat. And um, all that is important. But even more important than that, the meat was most certainly sacrificed before these pagan gods, before it was offered to the king and then to these guys. And that was against God's law. And you can read that in Exodus 34:15. I don't have it on your verse sheet. Exodus 34:15 talks about that law. They were not to eat food that had been offered in sacrifice to idols and pagan gods. This was against God's law. So Daniel resolves not to eat the food. And I love that word, resolve. The new uh, King James uses the word purposed, and the message translation uses the word determined. And those are good words for that. Resolve is to make a firm decision. It's fixed in purpose. It's firmly determined, resolute, firmly taking a stand. And that is what Daniel does. He resolves to be faithful to God. It's his highest priority, obeying God. Now, Daniel... He knows that Judah is in captivity because of their disobedience of God's word, not following God's law. And Daniel knows God's laws, and he trusts God's plan. He trusts in God. I loved it that Karen read Psalm 1 because that reminds me of Daniel, and it's on your verse sheet. Uh, I think Daniel, his delight was in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Daniel knew the law. So what that 
enables him to make this resolve? And what else helps him to make this resolve? Well, he is discerning. Daniel is discerning. He knows how to distinguish what is important to God from what is not. Learning the Babylonian literature and having a Babylonian name is not going to affect his relationship with God. But disobeying the law of God was going to have an effect on him. Daniel was discerning. Discerning means um, to distinguish between. It means perceptive. It's having good judgment to make good decisions, to distinguish right from wrong. And that sometimes, ladies, we know is, is hard to do. It can be very subtle. And discernment goes along with wisdom. In fact... Solomon asked for a discerning heart. Now, most of the time we think when God said to Solomon, what do you want? We think Solomon said wisdom, but he actually said, I want a discerning heart. And we read that in 1 Kings 3. Solomon says, so give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? God said, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you. So he asks for a discerning heart, and God gives him a discerning and wise heart. Discernment is skillful application of the knowledge we have from God's perspective. It's a wise decision from God's perspective. We need to be discerning women. Ladies, we need to be discerning. And we can only do that by knowing God's word, knowing who he is. And we learn that by studying his word, listening to him, so that we know what he desires, what is dear to his heart. It can be very hard to be discerning today. All kinds of voices are speaking to us in subtle ways in the world around us. And so it's hard to distinguish what is really right. And sometimes the world mixes a little truth with lies and we get confused. We have to spend time with the Lord every day listening to him, talking to him, reading his words, so that we can have that wisdom and discernment that makes us discerning women. There's many examples of it, from little things to like, does it really matter what my junior high daughter wears, to our attitudes that we begin to develop that come from the world around us. A good example of this, or an example, you decide if it's good. My husband and I went to a lot of movies this summer. Um, We didn't see all very many good movies. Um, one movie that we saw, and, and I don't usually go to see our movies because they're, it's just you know too much everything. But let me tell you, those of you that don't go to the movies and have teenagers, PG-13 is the new R. I mean, it was amazing to me, the stuff in those PG-13 movies. So if you have a 13-year-old, don't let him go see it. Anyway, my husband and I went to see a movie. I'm not saying you should see it or not, but it was called Columbiana. And it's about this little nine-year-old girl, and her parents are killed in front of her. And she's in a foreign country, and it's kind of the mafia bad guys of that country, and they kill her family. And she resolves right then at age nine that she is going to grow up, and she is going to kill those people responsible for her parents' death. And so she's very resourceful. She's very smart. She gets out of the country. She gets to America. She finds um, a cousin. She lives with him. And sure enough, she grows up to be this stone-cold assassin, killing the really bad guys in search of those that were responsible for her parents' death. And that's what she does. At the end of the movie, she does that. But in the meantime, she loses everything that she loves and is dear to her. And, and it was a well-done movie, and you kind of like this girl, and she's smart, and she's um, determined, and she's 
quick and, uh, you know, she is passionate about this. She stays focused. And so you walked out of the movie and I said to my husband, Scott, well, I think that was a good movie. She was, and then I began to think, you know, really, the whole theme of that movie is against what God says in his word. Because God says, revenge is mine. It's not yours. It's mine. And I began to think about this girl who was so sharp. And I thought, what if she had used that passion? What if she had used that focus and that intelligence and that determination to love others, to spend her life helping others that had been in a bad situation? You know, she was killing the bad guys. And so we walk out and we start to think, well, I guess that's okay. And then we begin to think, you know, it's okay for me to get back at that person that hurt me. And especially young people that that aren't all that discerning. They walk out and think it's okay to retaliate and to get revenge. And pretty soon, we're all off on this path that's totally against the Word of God. And it's so easy to do that. That's why we need to be in the Word of God, so that we know what God says, what is dear to His heart, so that we can stand um, true to that and make a stand for truth and not for those things that the world has out there that's that's uh, leading us astray. We, like Daniel, we want to be discerning followers of Jesus. We also see that Daniel has an attitude of respect and humility when he talks with the official. I love the way he does that. Daniel realizes, oh yeah, I don't want your head on a platter. So he thinks of another plan. Hey, give us a test for 10 days. Veggies and water. And then you be the judge how we look good. If we look good. If we look better than them. And so that's what happens. I love that he has this humble spirit and this attitude of um, respect. And you're going to continue to see that all through the book of Daniel. Look for his humility and this attitude of respect. You know, Daniel is the total package. He's the real deal. He, um, in my words, is a man of integrity. He's a whole person. What he says, he means. And what he says, he does. He's not divided. He's a whole person. I think maybe he must have meditated on Psalm 86 when it says, You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. I will praise you, O Lord my God, with all my heart. This was Daniel. He was undivided. His whole heart was turned towards God in faith and obedience. And I also think it was a good thing for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to have this great friend who had this resolve to be faithful to God. When you follow God faithfully, you never know who you are influencing. So let's uh, finish up these verses quickly. We're going to read and we're going to see how God rewards Daniel's faithfulness with blessing. Because when you have faith and obedience, blessing is right around the corner. And we're going to see that um, in these next few verses. Verse 15, at the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. So we see here the blessing of good health for Daniel and his friends. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. Now, knowledge has to do with reasoning skills. It's that thought process. They knew a great deal about science and the arts and literature. And understanding has to do with insight. It's interpreting. It's understanding things in their true light. Seeing things clearly. So not only were they knowledgeable, but they had understanding. They could put it all together. 
And then we see Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. To Daniel alone, God gave the ability to understand visions and dreams. And we're going to see the first dream next week in chapter 2, so you'll want to be here for that. Then in verse 18, it says, At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. We see God has blessed them with wisdom and discernment. And then verse 21 says, And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. He blesses Daniel with a long life and ministry. And his ministry takes place the whole time in the palace. And he remains in the palace where the kings can see Daniel's faithfulness and obedience to God. They're able to see God's sovereign power and control. And we know that God's people would hear of God's um, protection of Daniel, his powerful miracles that he worked on Daniel's behalf and on the behalf of his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This would go out to the people, and they would, as they hear these miracles, they would have hope in their God. They would have comfort in knowing that God has not abandoned them, that God is not going to leave them. They would remember that God loves them still. The prophecies that we will study authenticate God's plan throughout history. Now, some of these prophecies have already come to pass, and they happen just like God said they would. And that gives us proof of God's truth. We understand better the sovereign control of God, and our faith is deepened. And so then we can trust him more and more for those things that are in the future, those prophecies that are in the far distant future. And we can trust him for those things that are happening in our lives right now in the future for us. We can trust God as we study this. We've talked a lot about Daniel this morning. We've talked about Daniel's um, faithfulness and obedience to God and how God blesses him. We've talked about the sovereignty of God, how important that is. And the last thing on the outline is, have you resolved to faithfully follow God? And I didn't ask that question to make you feel guilty. I don't want anyone to feel guilty. I'm just asking it so that you individually can think about, where are you this morning? Where are you as we come to study Daniel? Now, some of you, I know, have faithfully followed God for many, many years. And I think the book of Daniel will encourage you to keep it up, to go strong to the end. Some of you have followed God faithfully for many years, but right now you are in a really hard place, the hardest place that you've ever been in. And you don't know if you can stand faithful to God. I think the book of Daniel will encourage you and give you strength to remain faithful to him. Some of you have never even thought about following God faithfully. You just kind of get up and live each day and walk through it and thinking, I don't know, am I being faithful or not? I think this book of Daniel is going to pull you towards him. And I think it will um, convince you that you want to follow God faithfully. When we see the blessings in the life that Daniel leads as he faithfully follows him. And then some of you, a few maybe, I don't know, might have said, hey, I'm not trusting God. How can I? How can I? I don't see him involved in all this. What's going on? What do you mean? 
I think if you come and study the book of Daniel, that you might be convinced of the power and the love and the faithfulness of our sovereign God in your life as you look at the um, lives that we're going to see in this book of Daniel. Wherever you are in this faithful journey, the good thing is we do not have to be faithful all on our own. God gives us the power. Once we say, Lord, I want to faithfully follow you, he gives us the power to do that, to be faithful and obedient to him. Philippians 1.6, and I want to close with this verse. This is Paul telling the believers in Philippi, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Praise God. It's his power that carries us along. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a powerful God. You are sovereign. You are in control of all things. Father, even when it doesn't look like it, even when we can't see it, Father, I know that you are in control. That you have a plan and your plan is good. And Father, I just pray that as we study this book of Daniel, this wonderful words of yours, this love letter to us, Lord, that each one of us individually would ponder your words and that we would come to know you better, that we would love you more. Father, that we would see your sovereign grace and control in our lives and that we would trust you for all the things, the big things and the little things, those scary things out ahead of us, those hard things. Father, that we would lean back into you, knowing that you have it under control, that you're a good God, that you are going to carry on the work that you have started in our lives. Father, bless these women. Bring them back next week. Smooth their paths. Speak to them. Speak to them, Lord. Speak to each one of us. We love you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.